Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is August 29th of 2013, and tonight our guest is Jacob Sullum of uh, Reason Magazine. He's written a book. It's called Saying Yes in Defense of Drug Use, and we're going to talk about what's wrong with the drug war and what's wrong with how drugs are represented in our media and uh, all over the U.S. and actually all around the world. Uh, before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Jacob Sullum, is with us right now. How are you doing this evening, Jacob? I'm all right. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Well, I've been reading your book, and it's really an excellent read. I recommend it to everyone. Um, well, so tell, tell us a little bit about um, what's what's wrong with the war on drugs. There's a general question. <laughs> well, I mean, lots of things are wrong with it. Um, I mean, I start sort of from a philosophical premise, uh, which says that people have a right to control their own bodies and their own minds and to control what they put into those bodies how they alter their consciousness, and the government has no business interfering with those choices. So if you believe that, you can't possibly support the war on drugs or any sort of prohibition policy. Um, in, in addition to that sort of philosophical point, which I think intuitively appeals to most people, at least at some level, when it comes to some things, um, but not necessarily when it comes to certain scary drugs they're afraid of, um, there's also the practical angle, which is whenever, whenever you try to ban something that lots of people want, uh, you create black markets and they have all kinds of bad effects, including violence like we're seeing in Mexico, really horrendous violence. But to, uh, what I, I lost track, uh, count at this point, it was over 50,000 last time I, I, I saw the number, an estimate, 50,000 deaths. I think it's more like 60,000 now. Um, uh, since uh, the last government launched its offensive against the cartels, um, the violence that's associated with uh, the black market in the U.S. as well is not quite as dramatic. Uh, but anytime you have, virtually anytime you have a, a so-called drug-related uh, homicide, it's not actually drug-related. It's not caused by the drug, but it's caused by the violence that's associated with the black market. You saw the same kind of violence during alcohol prohibition, but it wasn't because people got drunk and became violent because they were drunk. It's because uh, the black market's the only way to resolve disputes is through violence. Um, and, of course, you have effects on uh, consumers that go beyond uh, the danger of violence. Uh, when you buy something, you're not sure what you're getting in a black market. Uh, there's no legal system to punish fraud. Uh, there's not a kind of open competition that you have uh, in a legal market. Uh, so uh, people may claim to be giving you, for example, a tablet that's got MDMA in it, but it actually has, if you're lucky, just some caffeine maybe or uh, aspirin. Um, if you're not so lucky, it might be something that's considerably more dangerous than MDMA. Um, maybe you'll just get ripped off and maybe you'll actually be endangered by the things people pass off as, as the drug that you're looking for. Um, you know, that sort of thing does not happen in a, in a legal market. If you go into a liquor store and you buy um Something that says it's uh, 80 proof, meaning it's 40% alcohol. Uh, you know, have you ever done that? And then it turned out it was actually 160, or it was actually, uh, you know, uh, instead of 80 proof, it was 40 proof. You know, that that sort of thing never happens in a legal market. And I would say it's not primarily because 
the, the liquor store is afraid of getting into trouble with regulators or with the government. It's mainly because they want to keep their business and they want to attract business from from their competitors. Um, and you alienate your customers when you do that sort of thing. Um, if you have uh, sort of stable relationships with customers and you have open competition, then then reputation is very important and you don't want to be screwing around with people and cheating them. Um, but if you have fly-by-night operators in a, in a black market, that sort of thing is much more likely. Uh, and, of course, you have the effects of incarceration because if, you want to, if you're going to punish the people who make and supply drugs, then you're locking up large numbers of people to, you know, if you're going to be serious about it. Uh, of course, it's always going to be a small percentage of the total drug offenders, but, uh, you know, we have something like half a million people buying bars just in the U.S. Uh, for drug offenses. Um, and that every one of those uh, people who's locked up um, you know, represents um, lost opportunities for what they could be earning on the outside. Uh, they're, uh, they're away from their families, they're away from their communities, and it has very dramatic effects, especially with, within you know, the black community where uh, these uh, drug offenders who are in prison disproportionately come from. Um, you know, so you, you can imagine all of the kind of human consequences of that. Um, and it's not very good for rehabilitation or reintegration either. They have to send somebody away for years to prison. Um, it not only makes it more difficult for them to earn a legal living, um, it makes them, you know, more more likely to be criminals. Um, it trains them in, in crimes, and they may be, after serving time in prison, committing crimes that that, that actually involve victims, like property crimes and violent crimes. Um, and you you have the erosion of civil liberties that goes along with this uh, drug law enforcement. Uh, because police are trying to um, break up these consensual transactions, these things, you know, these, these uh, so-called crimes that don't involve victims, where everybody who is a party to the so-called crime is uh, has agreed to do that and is and wants to do that. That that sort of thing is hard to disrupt unless you have informants and you have spying and you have uh, uh, you know stings where you set people up and you basically you know, create a crime. Um, by pretending you want to buy drugs or pretending you want to sell drugs. Um, the erosion of the Fourth Amendment uh, during the last several decades. Uh, before we had the war on terror, it was it was almost entirely attributable to uh, the war on drugs. Look at every one of these uh, precedents, bad precedents, when it comes to Fourth Amendment law, um, and almost all of them uh, involve drugs. Uh, more recently, it's been more, uh, you know, anti-terrorism measures, but... Historically, uh, it was the war on drugs that eroded the Fourth Amendment. So there's just some of the bad effects. <laughs> there, are, there are many others. <laughs> uh, I guess I should probably should mention. I mentioned violence. There's also the issue of property crime. And this is often it's often overlooked. What a huge loss that is. Uh, you know, people talk about uh, how all these drug addicts are committing crimes, and and sometimes they may be committing crimes to support their habits, and that's much more likely to happen when your drug is illegal and therefore the price is vastly inflated. Uh, you know, there are some drunks, I'm sure, who steal to buy a six-pack or to buy uh, a pint, um, but that's much less likely to happen with a drug that's, that's cheap. When a drug is artificially expensive, people are more likely to steal. And furthermore, when you steal, um, the value of the property that's lost is much greater than, than what you get out of it because you have to sell stolen property uh, at a sharp discount. So mm -hmm, it's a huge mm -hmm. loss. You're, you're, you have a price of a drug that you have to pay that is much higher than it ought to be, than it would be um, without prohibition. And then in order to cover that price, you've got to steal something that's worth several times as much as, as the artificially inflated cost. That's really a huge economic loss. Um, and even when people aren't raising the money to buy the drugs through crime, 
they're spending a lot more money on their drugs than they should be. Um, and that's a, just a deadweight loss. And that, you know, money goes to criminals, of course. It goes to a lot of unsavory characters uh, may, who may be violent, um, not the sort of people you really want to be enriching and empowering. Um, if these drugs were legal and therefore much cheaper, all of that money would be available uh, to be spent in other ways and to be satisfying people's uh, needs and wants. And I think that that is actually a huge economic benefit that you would get uh, from legalization. I mean, we'll start to see something like that in the states that have legalized marijuana um, to the extent that it becomes much cheaper. People who are who consume a certain amount of pot will now have money left over, and that money will go somewhere else, and that's going to stimulate various kinds of economic activity. Well, you know, in my experience, most self-respecting drunks would much rather panhandle their money than steal. I always got bothered by that scene in Lost Weekend where Ray Meland has to steal his booze. And I said, no, I, I lived in a homeless shelter with drunks, and, you know, uh, every, almost everybody would panhandle. They wouldn't steal. You know, it was – and you can raise enough money to get drunk on by panhandling pretty pretty easy. Right, but if booze, if booze costs a uh, hundred times as much as it does, it would be harder to do that, right? Absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah. Then you would have to steal. Um, you mentioned the first, the Fourth Amendment, and you know, not everybody knows the amendments by number. So expand on that. What is the Fourth Amendment, and what's happening to it? Okay, well, uh, for the Fourth Amendment, um, among other things, it bans unreasonable searches and seizures. Um, and uh, what that means in the case of searches of homes generally is that you need a warrant. Um, but uh, in other contexts, perhaps not. And if there's some kind of exigency uh, or emergency, maybe not. Um, and the way that this, uh, you know, the privacy protection gets eroded is that police want to do certain things in order to enforce the drug laws, and the judges are inclined to let them do it. Because <laughs> especially, you know, when people are in a panic about drugs, they, they, the judges are afraid along with everybody else, and they're afraid of what will happen if, if, they, if they make it too hard for cops to enforce the drug laws. Um, and so you get things like the Supreme Court approving low-flying helicopters going over people's property, over private property, looking to see what's going on there. Maybe they're growing pot there. Um, uh, they approve that, even though that seems like an invasion of privacy. I think when people are in their own backyards, they don't expect that sort of thing to happen. Um, uh, more recently, you've seen a series of cases um, involving uh, drug-sniffing dogs, uh, which I've written about for reason recently, where the court, first of all, uh, declared uh, some time ago that a, a sniff of your luggage is not a search. Somebody brings along a dog that is supposedly trained to detect illegal drugs, they sniff your, your bag, that's not considered to be a search under the Fourth <laughs> Amendment. So the Fourth Amendment does not apply at all, right? So you might say, oh, well, maybe you don't need a warrant, maybe you need to, no, you don't need anything. <laughs> you don't need nothing because they just say it does not apply. Um, that means any time a uh, cop wants to, he can bring up a uh, a dog by your luggage, right? So that's long ago established. And then, then a, a different sort of case was, well, what happens if they pull your, your car over, which cops can do very readily. They very, very often can, usually can find some reason to pull you over. It might be a broken taillight. It might be what they claim to be an unsafe lane change. Maybe they say you were speeding. It can be something that actually is true or it could be something they totally make up. And now they've stopped you. And the Supreme Court relatively recently I said, once they've stopped you for some other reason, it is perfectly okay for them to bring one of these dogs by your car. And the dog come by your car, and the dog may signal 
uh, or the cop may say that he uh, alerted to your car. You never really know unless it's videotaped, and even then it might be ambiguous. Uh, so the cop brings the dog by your car. He says the dog alerts. Now he has license, according to the Supreme Court. This is a quite recent decision. Um, he has probable cause now to search your car. They unambiguously answered that question um, in a case this year. And they said, yes, if the dog, really what it is in reality is if the cop says that the dog alerted, <laughs> then he can search your car. That's the practical upshot of this. So what that means is that a cop with a dog can search any car he wants, essentially. Um, and with, and it can be totally made up. He, um, he might be mistaken in thinking the dog alerted. He could have, he could be lying when he says the dog alerted. The dog could be confused. Dogs often alert to things that aren't actually illegal drugs. Um, they have very high error rates in the field. So they will alert to a car and, and very often, if not most of the time, it depends upon the dog and the particular police department, but very often they will find nothing. The dog supposedly alerted to the smell of the illegal drugs. They search the car. There's nothing there. Well, what, what's going on there? The cops will say, well, there used to be drugs there. <laughs> <laughs> somebody who had this car before you, either you yourself had drugs in it, somebody who had the car before you had drugs in it, and there's no way to disprove that, right? If dogs are, are uh, detecting these infinitesimal traces of drugs, it's conceivable that that could have happened. Um, uh, but it's also conceivable that the dog, either the cop misread the dog or the cop lied or the dog alerted to something that wasn't um, a, a drug smell. Um, it could be that the cop subconsciously encouraged the dog to alert. Um, the cop is very happy when the dog uh, alerts, especially if he's suspicious of you. So if he thinks that you are some kind of uh, a drug dealer or drug trafficker and you're up to no good, the, the, the dog may pick up on that without the cop having to do anything consciously. And the, and the dog knows that he get pra gets praised when he alerts. Um, sometimes you will hear, you know, if they, if they videotape these encounters, sometimes you will watch them and you'll see them saying, uh, go do it, boy, or go to it, boy, or something like very encouraging, and the, and the dog may take that as a, as a signal that they should alert. And the cop is happy to have that because now he has a pretext to search. So, so, this, so that, the Supreme Court has said that they definitely can do that. So basically, a cop, as long as he's got a dog, and, you know, it's up, it, it, you have to go by his word that the dog is actually trained to do anything because that's the other thing that the Supreme Court has said is that uh, the police don't have to, um, the presumption is that if the, if the cops say the dog is trained, then the dog is trained. Now, he has a defense attorney later on challenging a search, which is only going to happen, by the way, if they actually found something, right? So all of the cases where the innocent people get inconvenienced and embarrassed and humiliated, uh, pulled over to the side of the road and the, their cars are turned inside out and nothing is found, that almost never is going to end up in court because nothing was found, right? So only in cases where they actually find something will it might get challenged down the line and the, it's all, the onus is on the defense attorney to show the dog that the dog was not, in fact, adequately trained, right? So, so in practice, it means that any any old dog, <laughs> you know, if you want to be convincing, you get a German Shepherd or you get a um, a uh, Labrador, right? Uh, any old dog will do, though. Um, and the, the cop says is well trained, is now a license to search any car he wants. Now, so the next question was: This is a separate case. Um, both of these cases are from Florida, but they were both heard the same year by the Supreme Court and decided around the same time. Uh, the second case involved a dog sniffing a house. So that's an even bigger deal because if you're going to say that a dog sniffs you, first of all, you don't need a warrant to do that because that's the implication of the case involving the, in the, the car search and the case, not, excuse me, not a car search. The case involving the car sniff and the, and the baggage sniff, if it's not a search, then why can't you bring a dog to somebody's house and have them sniff the exterior of the house, right? And this is what happened in this case. 
Um, and so is that okay? Okay, so if they said yes, that's okay, and the logic of their previous cases would suggest that it was okay. You don't need a warrant to just bring a dog by somebody's house and have them sniff it. Um, the logic of their cases also says that that now gives you probable cause to search the guy's house. So that would mean that a cop with a dog can search anybody's house at will. Um, the, that was too much for the Supreme Court. They said, <laughs> we're not going to allow that. And what they said is that in, for a house is special, and special protection, and therefore, even though they can bring a dog by your car without any kind of permission or, or probable cause or suspicion or anything, uh, do it randomly, um, they can't do that to your house. Um, and they need the implication was they, they need probable cause. They probably need a warrant to do that, right? So you have to go, if they're suspicious that, suspicious that somebody is growing pot in his house, uh, they would have to present the evidence backing that up to a judge, and the judge would authorize the use of the dog. And then the, if the dog uh, smells something or seems to smell something, or the cops claim that he smelled something, that that would apparently amount to probable cause. That's the way the courts routinely treated it, and now the Supreme Court has endorsed that idea. So that's just one little window there of, of how um, uh, this this tool that police use um, has become used routinely, um, it, it, very often it, um, these searches, the resulting searches involve innocent people. In some cases, it's most of the time. I mean, not many police departments keep these statistics. They don't, this is another issue in, in these cases is that they, why would they want you to know, you know, how often the, the, the dog alerts and nothing is found? That's not relevant to anything, right? <laughs> so they don't, they, they may very well not keep the numbers. They probably don't even record the encounter. So it's really just the, the police, the word of the police against um, the word of, of uh, the suspect or defendant, which is what it's going to be in most cases if it ends up in court. Um, and so this kind of thing just becomes taken for granted um, well, because you have to, you know, you got to enforce the drug laws. Well, I think it's really an interesting example now that you brought it up because I never thought of it this way before. I mean, I've seen many articles about how drug tests are very fallible. They have many false positives, and I knew all about that. But anytime I thought about the dogs, I always thought about the dogs are infallible, and I never thought until now. Yeah. You know, that's not true. <laughs> no, it's not. In fact, the, uh, judges tend to think that dogs are, are essentially infallible. Um, I would venture to say that they have a lot more false positives than drug tests do. Uh, so if you're worried about false positives and drug tests, you definitely should be worried about false positives uh, from, from dogs, um, and the cops are going to claim, oh, it's not a false positive because they're detecting these traces of drugs that are no longer there, and, and you can never disprove that, right? Um, uh, but the question is, if, if the, the, the alert from the dog provides probable cause, well, what does probable cause mean, right? If, it, if that if a given dog is only right 10% of the time, that doesn't seem like probable cause. And there, you know, there are cases where they've done these operations, and they, it's especially bad when they do it randomly, right? Because if they're randomly stopping people and, and doing the dog sniff, um, they have no suspicion at all that they're, they're um, operating uh, uh, you know, under. Uh, so they're just randomly stopping people, and you get very, very low rates, tiny percentage of, of searches, even when the dog alerts. So looking just at the case of the dog alerts, a very tiny percentage, you know, so maybe it's 4%. So 96% of the time, the dog alerts and nothing is found. Well, that's definitely, I would think, <laughs> it's not probable cause, right? I mean, they've never, you know, mathematically defined probable cause, but it seems like it ought to be more probable than 4%, right? So, so I think it really does, you know, it definitely matters what the actual error, you know, error rates uh, are, um, but the Supreme Court seems totally uninterested in that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What about the stop and frisk laws? Um, 
Yeah, well, that has, uh, you know, that uh, I think originally, uh, at least in New York, the rationale was uh, to find find weapons and really, I mean, they will say to deter the carrying of weapons, but that really is not a legitimate justification. But there's a very, very, um, you know, big component of that became uh, uh, drug possession, in particular marijuana possession, because the police are stopping uh, primarily young black and Hispanic men uh, in New York City, supposedly because they have reasonable suspicion that these people are up to no good, that they are, uh, you know, about to commit a crime, planning to commit a crime, thinking about committing a crime. And the Supreme Court has said that's okay. If the police watch you and they have some basis for believing that you're about to commit a crime, the classic case, the Supreme Court case involved these guys walking back in front of a store who seem to be casing it. Um, and the cop stopped them and he, and, and he furthermore frisked them because he, he thought they might be armed. And the Supreme Court said both of those are okay. If you've got a reasonable suspicion that somebody's about to commit a crime or, is, or, or, or has just committed a crime, um, you can stop them. You can question them. Uh, and furthermore, if you think they might be armed, they're a threat to you. They're a threat to, you know, innocent bystanders. You, you can pat them down, not a full-blown search. Pat them down. Do they have a gun on them? You can take the gun off, right? So but what happens in New York City is that they almost never find guns. Uh, a very tiny percentage of, of the cases where they – um, not only of the stops, but in most of the stops, a little bit over 50% actually involve pat-downs. So mo in most cases where somebody stops, they are patted down. And, the, and almost never does a pat-down find a gun, even when they say that the justification was, I saw a suspicious bulge. So what is actually happening is they'll pat them down much more frequently than finding guns. They're going to find a little bit of marijuana. They pat the guy down, oh, what's this bulge? Take it out. Okay. Now, the thing about New York is that, <laughs> as you probably know, is that um, even though possession of small amounts of marijuana is supposed to be not a crime, not the sort of thing you can be arrested for, it's supposed to be a citable offense, um, if you publicly display it, that is now that is a misdemeanor and you can be arrested for it. Um, public display, originally the idea of somebody you know, brazenly smoking pot in public. You know, so the legislature mm -hmm. back in the 70s didn't want people to be doing that because that offends people. So keep it, you know, keep it private, keep it discreet, and you're not going to get arrested. But if you're going to be lighting up a doobie in the middle of the street, you know, then the cops can nab you. That was sort of the theory. But now what the cops in New York have been doing is they will pull the pet pot out during one of these stops. And now it's publicly displayed. Before it was in his pocket, now it's publicly displayed. Now I can arrest you. Now that's a misdemeanor arrest. Um, now they might, they, they themselves might take it out during a pat-down, or they might say to the person, um, you know, if you're carrying anything illegal, it's not a big deal if you've got some pot on you, but let me know now, you know, you know things will go better for you. And, of course, you know, whenever a cop says things will go better for you, it's not going to go better for you. <laughs> so people will empty out their pocket or their backpack or whatever, take out whatever little bit of pot they got. Now they've committed a misdemeanor, supposedly. I mean, actually, that's not – if they're enforcing the law properly, they shouldn't be doing that at all. It's actually illegal for them to arrest somebody for public display if – it was only displayed publicly as a result of police intervention. So if a cop himself took it out or if he ordered or suggested that the guy take it out, um, that's not, that is not really public display. And, in fact, the police commissioner, you know, Ray Kelly himself, has admitted that that is illegal, although he, he has minimized the extent to which it happens. He admits that that's illegal. Uh, but that's been happening routinely in New York for years and years. So along with all these, the escalation in street stops, and the pat-downs, you have this huge escalation in, in uh, small-time penny ante pot arrests, even though supposedly that was decriminalized in the 70s in, in New York State. Um, you know, so that, that's how the drugs enter into it, because that's, they're much more likely to find a little bit of pot in somebody than they are to find the guns. 
Yeah, and they don't go into college dormitories uh, and do that to uh, college students. They, no, uh, not so much. They pick it's their, funny that. Yeah, they pick their neighborhoods. Um, you know, it's it's a matter of being the wrong color in the wrong neighborhood. Well, and I would, you know, just to be fair, this is their defense. That they, they say, we go there because that's where there's a high crime rate. And we are helping, we are victimizing them, but we're also helping them, right? <laughs> In order to help them, we have to victimize them. Um, and I've, actually, I've heard people sincerely make this argument, and they will admit, um, conservatives who defend, you know, uh, stop and frisk will admit, it is humiliating and it's terrible. If you were an innocent person, you're stopped by a cop and you're detained and you're questioned, you're patted down. That's a terrible thing. But at the same time, they will say that the same community that is suffering, you know, bearing this cost is also reaping the benefits in the form of uh, reduced violent crime and fewer murders and so on. And there's no question that violent crime has gone down uh, dramatically in New York City, even more dramatically than it has elsewhere. I mean, there's been a nationwide decline in the past uh, uh, couple of decades, um, but it's been more dramatic in New York City. And, and the police officials and Mayor Bloomberg will say this is largely due or partly due to stop and frisk. And there's, that's a big debate, you know, to what extent the stop and frisk, as opposed to other uh, strategies that the police have used, account for the decline in violent crime in New York. Um, but so this is what what they're going to say is is we don't go into the college dorms and pat people down because there aren't a lot of murders being committed there. Uh, we go we go where the, the violent crime is, and and that's why you disproportionately see uh, you know black and Hispanic young men being stopped. Well, you know, I do think that uh, they have done some good things in New York City, but I think the main good thing that they did was they put a lot of cops back walking the beats. And my experience, um, see, I lived in Minneapolis before I moved to uh, New York about seven years ago now. And what I noticed was that the crime rate was going up and up and up in Minneapolis. Well, at the same time, it was dropping in New York, I think, putting all the beat cops out walking the street. Everybody left and said, we go to Minneapolis where everybody rides around in police cars. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, one of the, the important uh, innovations in New York was the map- mapping of crime hotspots, figuring out where is crime actually happening, and focusing the resources on those places. Um, I think there's a pretty uh, uh, widespread consensus that that was a big that's a big part of the explanation for for why uh, crime has declined in New York more more so than in other places, um, which makes sense and makes an intuitive sense. Um, is, you know, could it be true that the stop and frisk program is also contributing to decline? It could be true. I mean, that's that's a matter of you know, it's an empirical question. It's a matter of some controversy, but you can't just say it works. It's <laughs> a justification, right? I mean, this is sort of Bloomberg's uh, mistake. If it's a mistake, I don't know what it is, but whenever he defends stop and frisk, he doesn't say it's constitutional. He says it's effective. And it's, well, there are lots of things that would be effective that, that aren't constitutional that we wouldn't accept. You know, it, it would be, certainly be effective to let police search people's homes at will. Well, yeah, they were right? the, yeah, I mean. And, but we don't do that. And it clearly would violate, the, you know, the Fourth Amendment to do that. So uh, the people who who challenged the stop and frisk program and the judge who, who uh ruled against it, um, said, you don't have reasonable suspicion. Maybe you do sometimes, but in, in a lot of these cases, perhaps most of these cases, you don't have reasonable suspicion. The Supreme Court has said you need that, first of all, to stop somebody to begin with. Second of all, to pat them down, you have to have reasonable suspicion that they're armed. If you're patting them down and you almost never find a weapon, 
then that does not sound like reasonable suspicion. Um, and, and Bloomberg, instead of saying, no, it is reasonable, here's why, he says, yeah, but it works. <laughs> so, <laughs> so maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but that's not the point. I mean, that's, uh, you know, the judge who ruled against the program was very clear on this. She's not evaluating empirically whether this is a good police strategy or not, whether it's effective. She's, she's evaluating whether it's constitutional. And there's a difference because there are lots of things that would be effective that, that would help the police. Um, that would be unconstitutional. It would violate people's civil liberties. I mean, civil liberties are a huge pain in the ass for the police. There's no question of that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they well, are. They're desi- mm-hmm. But they're designed to be that. You know, they're mm-hmm. designed to be uh, a burden and a barrier. Um, and, and, and people often lose sight of that when they start to talk about, you know, what works or doesn't work in terms of stopping crime. Yeah, well, we've seen a lot of dictatorships uh, – which have been very effective at stopping crime because uh, the populace has no protection. Um, they not only stop, you know, things like property crime, but you know, they also stop political crime of uh, right. thinking the wrong thoughts. Okay. So I prefer to uh, have a right to have my own opinions. Right. Not, and, not, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't. So this, that's you, we have to kind of think about, um, you know, the fact that. Uh, we don't want to give the police, uh, you know, a blank check to do whatever they want. I mean, uh, even though that might uh, lead to a lower crime rate. Um, I don't, you know, we shouldn't always be saying, oh, it doesn't work, you know, it's, it's bad and it's wrong and also it doesn't work. Because it may very well work. Sometimes these things do work, um, but it's just at what cost, right? At what cost to our privacy, at what cost to our freedom, to our... Uh, another way of thinking about it, what, at what cost to our sense of security vis-a-vis the state, right? People talk about trade-off between freedom and security, but to my mind, it's really a trade-off of one kind of security versus another. So in a police state, you may feel secure against street criminals, relatively secure, because they uh, are not tolerated, right? But mm-hmm. you don't feel secure uh, you know, uh, from uh, violence by the state or violence by the police or uh, you know, you're not sure if at any moment you might be detained for no reason um, and locked up. Uh, you know, so that's a different kind of insecurity. But you kind of have to weigh the, these two things. To the extent that you empower the state more because you're afraid of, of, of your average criminal, um, you increase the threat that the state poses to, to your uh, security. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I think that uh, with the huge amount of people that were imprisoning on drug offenses, and, you know, what happens after you're in prison on a drug offense, you get out, you can't get student loans anymore, you can't get public housing, you can't get an education, how can you live, you can live by crime, and what did you learn in prison was how to commit crime. I don't think we're reducing crime in the long right. run by putting all these drug, these nonviolent drug offenders in prison. Yeah, so that that's an example where you can say, not only is it, is it wrong, not only uh, is it, uh, you know, violating civil liberties in, in many respects, uh, the methods that they use to put people away, uh, for example, but it doesn't work. And I think that's true. It doesn't work because the people you're locking up are nonviolent, low-level drug offenders. Now you low-level, high-level. It doesn't really matter. If they're nonviolent, if, if all they're doing that you consider to be a crime is providing drugs to people who want them, um, then that really is a waste of your resources. Whether you, you know, it's also beyond just, to my mind, and shouldn't be done. Um, you know, it's immoral to do it, but it's also a waste. It's inefficient. Um, and this is what, you know, conservatives have come around to this uh, position over the past decade or so uh, because they've recognized, especially when budgets are tight, you know, who do we want to lock up? Do we want to lock up somebody that we're mad at, 
because he offends us by selling drugs? Or do we want to lock up somebody who's actually might mug us, that we're afraid of, right, who might, who might uh, kill us or somebody who's close to us? Um, you know, and so they really have to in places like Texas, for, you know, that's amazing to me. That I'm in Texas now. <laughs> but it's amazing to me that, that they had sentencing reform in Texas um, because it's one of the, you know, the kind of the last place or one of the last places you'd, you'd think you would see it. Uh, but you had a coalition of progressives and conservatives saying, first of all, uh, you know, or perhaps second of all, uh, one, you know, saying both that it was unjust, but also that it was a waste and it was ineffective and that, and, and you know, and it endangers the public, really, if, if at the margin, rather than locking up somebody who's actually a danger to the public, you're, you're locking up, uh, you know, a drug dealer instead. Um, you know, so they've come to that realization uh, in Texas, in Arkansas, another place you might not expect to see sentencing reform. Um, you've had in New York State, they revised the Rockefeller drug law, so they're not quite as harsh and draconian as they used to be. Um, and this is all part of a process where people say, wait a minute, I think we went too far. Uh, it seemed to make sense at the time, but, but when we look at all these people we've locked up and how long we've locked them up, it really is not a good use uh, of these prison cells. We'd rather be using them for another purpose, or maybe we can, if we, you know, really set up drug offenders, we can actually close some of these prisons and use the money for something else. Um, California has a huge problem with ridiculously overcrowded prisons to the point where the courts have intervened and said this is a constitutional violation because you got, it's so crowded and primarily the healthcare system is so messed up because it's so crowded, um, uh, you know, and they're under supervision and being ordered to reduce their population. So they have to start reevaluating things like, you know, the three strikes law. Um, who, who is it that we really want to be focusing on, right? Um, and if, it's, if somebody's third strike is, is a marijuana offense or something ridiculous or, you know, some minor theft, and they're going away for 25 years, that's just insane, right? And so they, so we're, it always feels good, you know, to crack down hard on crime, but then when the bill comes due, <laughs> you have to start to question whether this is really a good use of your resources. Oh, well, then we get to the question of uh, what should we do with, with uh, drugs? Um, should we make them all legal? Should we get rid of the prescription drug? drug laws and have, you know, any, anybody be able to get Prozac over the counter, heroin over the counter, or should we have heroin under prescription or what would you, what would you say that would be a good solution? Well, I think w when you uh, look at the history of, of drug control in America, it's clear that the foundation of this is the mandatory prescription. In other words, saying in order to get certain drugs, you have to get permission from a doctor. Um, not that, that doctors, you know, obviously doctors can always recommend stuff that you might try. They can always treat you with things and, and give you advice and that sort of thing. But to say that it is required to do that, that's the first step toward restricting some things so much that you can either not, not get them at all or virtually never get them. And then you eventually have, you know, the schedule of drugs where some are completely prohibited and some are tightly restricted, some are somewhat less tightly restricted and so on. And this whole, the whole edifice of drug prohibition is built on this notion that you need permission to use certain substances. Um, so, yeah, I would abolish all of that. And, I would, and, it, and it makes makes no sense, really. I mean, if you had a system where you legalize heroin, so you, go in, you can go into a store and get heroin over the counter, but you would still need a prescription for morphine. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, heroin breaks down in the morphine almost immediately anyway, so it's like it's a distinction without a difference. Um, and, I, and I also think that it's deceptive in the sense that people think if you get some psychoactive substance that's described by your psychiatrist, or more often it's a GP doing, you know, prescribing antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs and that sort of thing, or stimulants, 
um, if you get that, that's a medicine that's treating an illness and that makes it okay. But if you buy a street drug, you know, even if it's doing the same thing for you, even if it's making you less miserable, as an antidepressant does, or even if it is, uh, you know, helping you uh, stay awake and do something you want to do and, you know, put off sleep, as stimulants do, um, and, and, and you know, might, might even make you safer as a driver or, or, or better able to pass your exams as a student, um, it's, it's uh, you know, treating a, a disease and legitimate if you've got a little piece of paper from your doctor, that makes it not a crime. But if you're doing exactly the same thing, even with the same substance, that's the insane thing, right? It could be an identical substance. It could be, um, you know, drugs that are prescribed for uh, attention deficit uh, disorder. If you're the one who happens to have the piece of paper, now you have a disease and you guys, you're, you're just taking your medicine. But if you're this guy's friend and you take one of his pills and you're doing exactly the same thing, it's to help you, you know, pay more attention in class and study better your exam and get better grades, that's a crime. Um, I think that's insane, and, and, and we, should, we should be, you know, knocking down those distinctions as much as possible, and I think part of that is rethinking, you know, what is it we're doing when we take these drugs that doctors prescribe? Um, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? If it's a good thing, then why should it matter whether we got the doctor's permission or not, whether it's one of the drugs that happens to be legal or not? We really have to look at how people are using the substances. Are they on balance helping them or improving their lives, or are they on balance hurting them, Right. That's how you decide whether something's good or bad in the case of, of uh, legal drugs, you would think, and it should, the same kind of distinction should be applied to illegal drugs. Uh, so, yeah, I would, I would get rid of you know, as many of those distinctions as possible. And the other thing that I, I would be like to see is that people could create new drugs um, where you could say, you know, go to the F assuming there has to be some kind of regulation, I'm not sure that there needs to be, you know, uh, a, a central federal agency that's in charge of take, you know, keeping things off the market. Um, you know, I, I think there should be rules against fraud, and, and you can have all kinds of, uh, you can have independent kind of testing um, that would let people know the effects of drugs. So I'm not sure that you need a central agency deciding all this. But assuming you do have to have that, um, it is not possible right now to go to the FDA and say, here's a new drug I created. And they say, what's the application? And you say, fun. This is, a, this is a drug. This drug will help you have more fun at parties. That's specifically it's for party fun. <laughs> right. We have another drug that's sitting on the couch by yourself fun. This is a party fun drug. You know, and they look at you like you're crazy. There is no such category. Um, you have things that are grandfathered, obviously alcohol being the main one. Alcohol is, is the fun at parties drug, among other things, right? Mm -hmm. It's the calm you down anti-anxiety drug. It's the fun at parties drug. It's the treating, you know, social anxiety uh, <laughs> disorder drug. <laughs> all, you, know, that, you know, does all, a whole bunch of different functions that are also, uh, you know, performed by uh, prescription drugs. Um, but that's grandfather. That's a special case. You cannot create a new drug um, and, and openly say what it's really for. You have to make it, uh, you know, a treatment for a disease, right? So... Instead of fun at parties, you might say, yeah, this is a medicine for social anxiety disorder. Um, you know, you can, uh, a drug, if you say the dr a drug is to have better sex, that sounds kind of suspicious. So you have to say, <laughs> you know, this is for erectile dysfunction, right, is to treat a disease. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and there's this whole thing about, about stimulants in particular where it's kind of like with doping in sports where if you are subpar, like you're below average, it's okay, and you have, you have more trouble than most people paying attention, right? And your grades are worse than, <laughs> than most of the other students. Then that's okay for you to take a stimulant to improve your academic performance. In fact, 
that's that's medicine. But if you are are average or above average, and you you know you're trying to get from an A minus to an A, oh my God, that's you know <laughs> that's clearly wrong, and, and and it ought to be criminalized. Um, you know, I, it doesn't really make much sense to me. Um, there's a moral. It's really it's a moral evaluation, and I'm not sure what the basis for it is. It's not a medical evaluation, not a scientific one, right? Um, uh, people are just disapproving of people who are already doing pretty well, doing even better, as opposed to people doing you know, crappy, doing, doing, uh, uh, you know, improving their performance. Um, mm -hmm. So there are all these, you know, attitudes that are ostensibly scientific or medical uh, uh, positions that really are not, and I think need, need to be examined more closely. Mm -hmm. Even with alcohol, you know, uh, we're very uneasy with it. And, you know, with alcohol, you're not allowed to have too much fun because, uh, oh, he's having too much fun. He needs to go into treatment for his addiction disease. He's having too much fun. He needs to go to AA and become miserable and, and get religion and work, and get a higher power and stop having all this fun. You know, you're only allowed really, to yeah. have a really tiny amount of fun with alcohol. You have to be moderate or else. You right. Know. There's, I mean, it's actually, uh, I get into this in my book a little bit, but there's this whole, there's this notion that like the Puritans were no fun at all, like never had fun, which isn't true. Mm -hmm. uh, they did drink, by the way. I mean, they weren't teetotalers. And they did uh, have games, but they had a. Very, they were very concerned about excess, about um, having too much fun, as you put it. Um, in itself, that having too much fun, is, even if it didn't ruin your life, that just having too much fun was itself suspect, right? So that's really what what the puritanical attitude in America is about. It's not that we should be totally ascetic and never have any fun or enjoy ourselves, but it's this constant anxiety about, am I, and is this amount of fun okay? Am I having too much fun yet? <laughs> um, it's a little bit like Ned Flanders on The Simpsons, right? I mean, he does, Ned Flanders is a drinker. Mm -hmm. um, you may remember episodes where he get his own bar with with a beer keg and all, a beer tap and all that. Mm -hmm. um, he plays games certainly, uh, but just not really fun games. <laughs> it's not he never really gets rip roaring drunk or anything like that. So it's sort of like that. And there's this this constant anxiety, so that it's the point where it is literally true that certain drugs get banned when people start enjoying them, and that is the reason they get banned. And and for example, look at um, MDMA. Um, as long as, as MDMA was this uh, drug that was used by psychotherapists to help people communicate and to overcome the anxieties about you know being candid and and uh, get in touch with their feelings and so forth, you know, it was not a big deal. But as soon as people started uh, taking it and going to clubs and parties and having fun with it. Um, and enjoying it in a kind of essential way in a social environment, that's when the DEA decided it had to be banned. It wasn't like people were dropping dead left and right <laughs> from MDMA. This is, is literally what happened is that once it moved from being you know, the, from the medical category to the social or recreational category, that's when it got banned. Um, and, you know, same thing at LSD. I think LSD had it never... Uh, it had, had it always been used by like in a psychiatrist or psycho, you know, psychiatric or psychotherapeutic setting, if that was what it was known for, it would probably still be legal. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it once but once people started tripping and having a good time, that's, <laughs> that's <laughs> when it was, you know you had to ban it. So it really is the case um, that fun can get a drug banned. Um, so if you're having fun with a, with a drug that you like that is that they haven't gotten around to banning, you should probably shut up about it. <laughs> Don't tell people. <laughs> um, 
I mean, uh, oh, salvia is another example. This is happening right now, right, with salvia of an arm. I don't know if you ever tried it. The truth is it's not that much fun. <laughs> I mean, it's usually, I mean, most of the really good drugs, they, they managed to ban already. But, but uh, you know, so here's a drug that's been around, you know, for thousands of years. It's been used um, ritualistically in, you know, South America. And, again, that's fine. That's fine. Just like medicine, it's fine for medicine. And it's fine if, if it's just a bunch of natives who are using it in their, in their, their weird <laughs> religious rituals. We don't care about that. I mean, peyote has been exempted from federal drug laws, you know, but it's used by the Native American church forever um, because that's, you know, fine. Let them have that, you know, as long as nobody's enjoying it. <laughs> and the great thing about peyote is it usually makes you vomit. So it's like, well, if they're vomiting, you know, it's clearly not fun. So that we can tolerate that. Uh, but, but so salvia just it started catching on, and it was one of these, you know, it's a legal high thing, right, where it's like, oh, did you know that there is a drug that they, didn't, they haven't managed to ban, and it actually is psychoactive, so we should try this. Um, and then there was, I don't know if you've watched these videos on YouTube, but there's, like, so many videos of people tripping on salvia. And I'm not, you know, just for the videos, it's not so much the people taking the salvia are having fun as the people watching this, <laughs> enjoying themselves. But, but this is, you know, this is actually having Literally, how things get banned is that state legislators uh, are tipped off to some YouTube video, which they watch, and they get outraged. And what what uh, outrages them is that here's this drug that people could take that alters their consciousness, and people seem to be having fun with it, and it's still legal. How is that even, you know, they don't even inquire into, oh, does it kill you? You know, does it cause brain damage? Is it, um, is it behind a bunch of car wrecks or anything? No. They do, as soon as they know that it's a psychoactive substance, that some people seem to be enjoying it, and somehow it's still legal. They have to file a bill, and they and that's you know that's what's happening. It's being banned, and they're you know a bunch of states have banned it. Um, it was banned. Texas uh, hasn't gone around to banning it yet, but Dallas has banned it, which is <laughs> kind of puzzling and weird. <laughs> I don't know why Dallas decided to ban it. Um, but so here's you know here's a plant that you can legally buy online, uh, ostensibly not for human consumption, because you can run into trouble with the FDA if you say that. Um, and then suddenly you can't, right? Because some legislator decided uh, that, you know, that wasn't proper. Um, and, you know, so that, that's really is how drug policy is made. And the more, <laughs> the more the people uh, look, look at the – I'm going to let my dog out. He's uh, the more the people, uh, you know, look at the history of drug policy and not just the history of what is going on right now before our eyes, the more they realize how arbitrary these decisions are and how ill-informed they are. Uh, that that people just kind of have a gut reaction that's not at all rational, um, and that's the basis of legislation. Well, one other thing that we should talk about a little bit is this notion that drugs hijack your brain and make everybody totally out of control. You know, you see this on television. It's kind of I kind of think of Breaking Bad, where the guy took a heroin and like was immediately addicted. Um, at you know, in my experience, actually, I didn't try a lot of illegal drugs because I was already doing alcohol, caffeine, nicotine, marijuana, and I said, I have enough to juggle right now. This is already a lot of work to juggle these four. I, I really can't add anything new on to this. Uh -huh. but, but that was like me choosing that for my own self-control. And eventually I cut out marijuana because this started making me depressed all the time. So. So now I'm down to three that I juggle, basically. And then over-the-counter, I do have melatonin and Benadryl, and that's my total drug consumption. But, you know, this, this whole notion that these drugs hijack your brain and take you over immediately after one use, um, tell tell me a little bit about how this misrepresentation yeah. that the media does. Well, 
Well, I mean, this, this is, um, I call this voodoo pharmacology, right? It's the idea that, that drugs um, take over your mind and take over your body and they make you do bad things. I mean, that's the general thrust of it. And, you know, the bad things vary. <laughs> sometimes it's, it's having wild sex. Sometimes it's uh, committing acts of violence. Uh, sometimes it's just um, never holding a job, just kind of sitting around on the couch all day long and never amounting to anything and just being a burden on society. Um, but whatever it is, it's the drug that's making you behave that way. Um, and so that's the general notion. And, and to me, I think um, a big part of the explanation for why certain drugs end up being banned and others don't is that people come to believe that certain drugs are different from the more familiar ones, right? So people generally understand alcohol, for sure, you can consume so much that it really interferes with your life, it interferes with your health, um, but most people who drink, uh, you don't consume it to that point, right? And they understand that you can, you can consume it uh, moderately or recreationally, uh, socially, without it ruining your life. In fact, it improves your life. And this is why people, you know, the weird thing is, that's why people do, do these drugs. <laughs> they actually like them. And that improves their life. You know, so, but people do recognize that, for the most part, when it comes to alcohol. And that, you know, if you want to sit at home and have a cocktail or two of an evening, that's nothing wrong with that. But you really shouldn't be driving when you're drunk and endangering other people. And you shouldn't be drinking so much that it destroys your liver. You know, uh, you shouldn't be drunk at work when you need to function and be, you know, be, be, be uh, sober and straight. Um, and, you know, so people make those distinctions all the time when it comes to alcohol. But when it comes to illegal drugs, uh, they feel like they're qualitatively different in some way. And I think the essence of the way that they're different is what we've been talking about, that they take over, they take over your mind and they, and they make you do things you wouldn't otherwise do. Um, and, and, and there are a couple of responses to that. I mean, one of which is, why would anybody want to use these drugs if that's really, if that's how, how they work, right? If you mm -hmm. take these drugs and even, it wouldn't even have to be in most cases. Let's just, and that's usually the, the you know, the way the story is told is, yeah, so everybody who ever tries heroin becomes addicted, you know, or the vast majority of people do, which is not true if you look at patterns of use. But even if it's not, uh, you know, a majority, even if it happens, you know, a substantial minority of the time that you take this drug and you, uh, hack somebody, you know, some, you hack up, you know, hack up some innocent bystander, <laughs> um, or go rape someone. You know, suppose it only happens every every five times, every fifth time. <laughs> drug, it would be not even most of the time. But if you have a twenty percent chance that I, after I take this drug, I'm going to go out and rape somebody or kill somebody, and then the yak can get you into trouble, right? Um, uh, you probably don't want to take that drug. And so, how would it be that any kind of that, a drug that did that? Or, or anything like that would ever become popular. It it's, you know, makes no sense on the face of it. And so that's, you know, the first kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, caveat is that how could it possibly be true that these drugs frequently lead to these results and yet people, yet they're popular, yet people continue to take them. Um, and any time, you know, I've gotten to the point where I just don't believe anything, anybody, any, any, any bad thing that people say about drugs, I really need to look into it thoroughly before I give it any credence whatsoever because it's almost always bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that having, you know, done this for 25 years and, and tried to chase down all these stories. And uh, one great example of this, and then this is almost literally voodoo pharmacology, was this case of the Miami cannibal, Causeway cannibal. Miami, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Miami zombie, you know, whatever they called him. It was a horrible case, right? It was this... Uh, this guy who attacked a, a homeless uh, uh, alcoholic, actually, although that's not strictly speaking relevant to the story, um, 
and, and ate most of his face, or chewed off, it's not clear that he ate it, chewed off right, most of his face. It was a horrible assault. They ended, the police ended up killing the assailants. Um, and almost immediately, there was a story out there saying, oh, the reason he did that is that he was high on bath salts. So what are bath salts? Bath salts are stimulants of various kinds that are sold uh, ostensibly as bath salts, right? So not for human consumption, but they're substitutes for speed or maybe cocaine and Right, and, and that the particular chemicals the government hasn't gone around to banning yet, and that's why they're being sold over the counter, but they're, you're not supposed to sell them for human consumption. Um, and so it's not even any one particular uh, drug. It's any of a number of drugs could be a bath salt, right? But, but, but there was a cop who was the head of the local uh, police union in Miami who told a local TV station um, that this sounded very much like the way people behave under the influence of bath salt. And again... It sounded very much like it. It's like, how many cases are there? <laughs> One guy chewing off another guy's face. <laughs> I mean, the reason this got so much attention is precisely because it was unique, right? I mean, nobody had ever heard of this before, uh, you know, a case like that. And it got worldwide attention precisely because this either has never happened before or almost never happened. Um, and yet somehow this is typical, right, mm-hmm, of people mm-hmm. who use bath salts. Mm-hmm. And nobody pauses this to reflect. The story gets picked up and repeated, and it's not even a guy who is involved in the case, and there, is no, there are no toxicology results to go by. Uh, there's no evidence but this one cop's speculation that the guy, who, the assailant, the, the cannibal, right, was, uh, was high on bath salts when he committed this crime, and that's why he did it. And this story uh, was picked up all over the place with all these headlines from people talking about how horrible bath salts are. It's just one of you know, many examples of the horrible things they lead you to do. Um, and this went on for a month or two. I forget the exact length of time, over the summer. And then when they finally got the toxicology results back, it turned out, no, he hadn't consumed any of them. It was totally groundless, Right. And yet, to this day, I'm sure there are people who believe, oh, yeah, remember that guy who chewed off the other guy's face in Miami because of the bath salts? They still believe that that's true because that's mm-hmm. what all the covers said. And the, the corrections, to the extent that there were any, uh, came much later, and people didn't notice them. Um, and so what's going on there, okay? Uh, oh, the, the sort of interesting sidelines of that, by the way, is he had an ex-girlfriend, um, uh, Rudy Eugene, that was the guy's name, um, who speculated, no, it wasn't drugs. She thought it was some kind of voodoo curse. And I thought, that's, you know, that's just as good an explanation. <laughs> <laughs> we shouldn't mock her, right? Be, you know, these, these reporters are like, oh, it's the bath off. Bath off, you know, turn you into Satan's spawn. Everybody knows that. And then the, the girlfriend is like, no, I think it's a voodoo curse. Like, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> voodoo curse, that's crazy talk, right? Uh, but what she said was just as logical as what they were, were claiming about bath salts. And so it was like literally turned him into a zombie, right? Um, a, a, a flesh-eating zombie um, is through some kind of magical means. Um, so it's almost literally voodoo pharmacology. Um, and, and everybody believed it. And, and so what, what's going on there, I think one of the things that's going on is you see this horrific thing happening and you don't really have a good explanation for it. There never will be a good explanation for it. I venture to say <laughs> there's never going to be any, any you know, uh, decisive answer to what exactly happened there, what caused that to happen. Clearly, uh, uh, this is not a typical result of, of bath salt consumption, right? Um, so there's something else going on there other than the drug. You can see that right off the bat. 
um, you know, what was going on in this guy's mind? Well, people say, oh, he had some kind of mental illness. But to me, that's yet another kind of explanation that doesn't really explain anything. It's like, well, that's just the term you're using to say he did something that was totally inexplicable and irrational um, and vicious and, you know, horrifying. Um, so people want an explanation. And so um, this was their explanation that they, most people latched onto was, oh, it was the drugs that made him do it instead of the devil. We don't say the devil made him do it anymore. Most of us don't say that anymore. We say the drugs made him do it. Um, and so I think that's a big part of what's going on, um, is that especially when you're talking, you talk about violence, people see uh, horrifying crimes um, and they want to attribute it to something other than human nature, right? Some, some outside force that forces people to do uh, these terrible things. Um, so it's sort of natural tendency, but it's totally unscientific and there's no, you know, uh, no basis for it in terms of, uh, you know, the, the history of how people behave under the influence of these substances. And that would be the first test is you want to know, okay, you've got 100 people who use bath salts. What percentage of them chew off somebody's face or, you know, or commit any act of violence? Um, and we've had, you know, one story after another about different drugs that supposedly lead to irrational, uh, you know, violence. Um, and when you look closely at the facts, it turns out not to be the case. I mean, uh, PCP is one of the famous ones. They don't talk about it that much anymore. But uh, PCP uh, supposedly, um, either very frequently or routinely or most of the time, uh, made people really violent and gave them superhuman strength. They said the same thing about bath salts later. Um, but then when you look at the history of it, like, first of all, they started out testing this as an anesthetic. It's, an, it's a, a veterinary anesthetic. They tried to use it in people. So they did a bunch of studies where they looked at, you know, gave people this drug. Nobody was ever violent in any of these studies. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's your first. All right. So clearly it does not always, you know. It's not just the drug that's making people violent. And then, you know, you look at uh, you look at the literature. You know, there was there was no somebody did this uh, um, survey of, of all the literature about PCP to see you know where are these cases where people uh, take PCP and it, and it makes them you know commit horrific acts of violence. And they couldn't find any where people under the influence of just PCP were were uh, you know doing what they reputed to do, acting like the Incredible Hulk and so on. Um, so at the very least, you'd want that, right? I mean, even if you, it turns out that people are using a drug and then behaving in a certain way, it doesn't mean the drug made them do it. There could be other, other factors involved. But at the very least, you'd want to show that you have a pattern of people committing these acts of violence under the influence of a certain drug. And, and you know, sort of the, I don't know if it's not, not exactly a refutation of it, but, but um, interesting to note that they, these same stories were once told about marijuana, right? I mean, that was the slam, the slam against marijuana in the 20s and 30s was that it made you violent, right? And people are like, come on, right? Make marijuana violent? Maybe make you, a, you know, a couch potato. Maybe uh, make you totally lethargic. The, the reputation, marijuana's reputation now is completely the opposite, right? It's not something that makes you aggressive and violent. It's quite, mm -hmm. quite the opposite. Uh, if anything, too much, too much in the opposite direction, right? Mm -hmm. um, and yet... People at a time when this was not a familiar drug to most people, people readily believed that yes, you smoke some reefer and you go rape black men will smoke reefer and rape white, rape white women or um, Hispanics will take it and 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 murder their families with with, with axes. Um, uh, it was believable to most people because most people were not familiar with this drug. And so what the hell, you know, they listened to what uh, politicians or bureaucrats told them about it. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And most yes. of most of us today, I, I've probably seen the movie Reefer Madness. We were probably smoking a joint while we watched it and laughing our yeah. asses off. 
Right. But people took that movie absolutely seriously when it came out. Um, yes, and and you know if you if you look at what Harry Anslinger, who was the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics when when Congress banned marijuana, what he had to say about marijuana um, was that it was uh, a killer drug, that it made you into a killer, um, and uh, having no personal experience on which to draw, you know, legislators just kind of had it. To, he was the expert. <laughs> they took his word for it, um, and it's amazing to look look at the transcripts of uh, when Congress was was passing the Marijuana Tax Act, the so-called Tax Act, it was effectively prohibition at the federal level, um, and uh, it's clear they don't even know what the hell they're banning. They don't literally don't know. There's a, a one member of Congress, and it was somebody it was a fairly I forget what his position was exactly, like his, the whip, majority whip, something like some fairly high position. Saying what is it we're voting on? <laughs> what, are we, what are we what are we banning? And then somebody else says, "Oh, it's a uh, marijuana, something called marijuana, it's some kind of narcotic." He's like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> <laughs> so, you know that 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 always sort of uh, it kills me when people say, "Oh, well, we're gonna let's talk about you know marijuana law reform, but we need to be really careful in how we evaluate. You know, we don't want to leap into legalization because that would you know could be a huge mistake and." And I'm thinking we leapt into prohibition. <laughs> like why? Why are we suddenly being so careful? You know, why is the onus always on the people who uh, want more freedom and less prohibition? Um, you know, they, they, if you look at the history of how these laws are actually made, they don't deserve any respect at all. I mean, in terms of having, there shouldn't be any assumption that oh, we have these laws, they must make some kind of sense. <laughs> you know, because it really they were never made that way. They were not made in a rational fashion, and so to give them. Give, give give any advantage to the fact that they exist and they're in the uh, the law books because oh somebody must have put some thought into them it's not true <laughs> so they don't don't deserve any respect whatsoever uh, so uh, you know I think the onus has to be on the people who who are trying to justify prohibition because they're the ones who want to use force to stop people uh, from doing things that don't violate anybody's rights. Well, ultimately, there's a heck of a lot of money involved in keeping prohibition in effect. I mean, it's going to benefit the DEA. It keeps them, uh, you know, in work. It benefits the drug dealers. They've got lots of money. It benefits, uh, you know, the people that own private prisons. Uh, these people have a vested interest in, you know, it's going to hit their pockets if drugs are legalized. It's true. There are, I mean, there are a number of vested interests and, and, um, Prison guard unions, for example, have been known to oppose um, sentencing reform. You know, they don't want <laughs> they don't want fewer prisoners. They don't want people serving shorter sentences. That's not in their interest to do that. And of course, they will say, "Oh, it's it's really dangerous. You're gonna uh, these are dangerous characters. You're letting out early or not sending to prison to begin with, and that's gonna lead to an increase in crime." And they may honestly believe that, right? I mean, people. I don't think, for the most part, people who um, advocate for policies where they have some kind of self-interest um, are thinking behind, the, you know, in private, they're like, oh, I, this, is, this is a terrible policy I'm pushing, but, but it's going to benefit me. I mean, very, very few humans really operate that way. They convince themselves that whatever is good for them is good for the, the general public. So I think that, you know, the, the, the uh, prison guard union people probably do believe that whatever happens to be in their interest is also in the interest of the general public. Prosecutors, the police, who you know oppose uh, drug policy reform, um, uh, you know they're not saying, "Oh, if I, geez, if I 
support drug legalization, you know, we're not going to get as much forfeiture money, and that would be really bad for our budgets. I and mean, they never, you know, I don't think that even positively they're acknowledging that uh, for the most part. You know, they're going to be well, some people that's that's true about decision making in general. You know, it's a very emotional process, and most times you decide with your emotions and you figure out the reasons afterwards. It's very rare to make a decision based on pure logic, and then have an emotional reaction to really believe in it afterwards. It might and, happen. And, you know, look and look. And the other thing, I mean, aside from the money, I mean, there is obviously there's a financial angle in a lot of angle in a lot of these things. But there's also people have dedicated their careers to a certain line of work enforcing the drug laws, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's very difficult to admit that it was all a huge mistake. I mean, look at these, there, there are people who, like in law enforcement against prohibition, who mm -hmm, fit that description, but that's quite unusual for people to spend their, their whole careers or a big chunk of their careers enforcing the drug laws and then late in life to say, geez, that was a huge mistake and I really feel bad about it. That's pretty rare. Um, so it's a natural tendency to want to, to wanna defend your life, your life's work. And mm -hmm. not think it was a big, big mistake. And you, but without regard to the money involved, um, your you, the way you feel about yourself and, and your life, you know, <laughs> that's important to people. They don't want to feel like they're the bad guy, like they're doing bad things. They want to feel like they're working for a good cause. Um, I, I think that's probably a more important motivation when it comes to people, uh, you know, in law enforcement. Um, there also, I guess, we should probably say that you know there are uh, potential financial interests on the other side as well. So. If we were trying to get financial interests to work in favor of drug policy reform, you have to think about, well, who could benefit from legal marijuana, for example? I mean, who, uh, you know, which big businesses might be able to, to sell commodified marijuana, for example? Um, which is not to say there wouldn't also be, you know, sort of um, epicure, Epicurean uh, marijuana that would be more expensive uh, from smaller producers. Um, but uh, we shouldn't be, I mean, I think a lot of progressives who are against the war on drugs, they tend to get all squeamish when they think about, oh, we really want Philip Morris selling you know, packs of joints or whatever. <laughs> like, that would be horrifying. That would be too much. No, that's the way, when things are illegal, that's the way it works, you know. Um, you know, I mean, who, when they when they repealed um, alcohol prohibition, they weren't like, oh, we're going to, these big companies are going to get rich, you know, selling alcohol, and that would be terrible. <laughs> let's, let's, let's keep this disastrous policy because uh, we don't want those big corporations. You know, I think that's kind of absurd. I mean, it's, 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 it's from these big corporations that the consumers get, you know, tremendous benefits, like I was talking about before. They're going to get the drugs they want, the effects they want. Um, they're going to get it more cheaply for sure. That's going to happen right away. But then the other exciting thing that I was alluding to is that you can get new drugs that are better. They're better in the sense that they do precisely what you want them to do for the length of time you want them to do it, and they don't, and they have minimal side effects, right? The black, mm -hmm. is a, is, the black market is a terrible way, you know, to develop uh, new, uh, safer, more precise drugs. Um, there's very little incentive to do that, Um you have no guarantee that you're going to reap the benefit of that innovation. Um, but in a legal market, assuming it's allowed, you can do that sort of thing. And, you know, so you have, um, well, one example, and, there, you know, DMT is, is sort of like this, I suppose, but, but, but I think to have a short-acting psychedelic, LSD is a big, you know, commitment of time. <laughs> it's hard for you know grown-ups and people who have like jobs and children and that sort of thing. It's really hard to set aside a block of you know eight to twelve hours, right, where you're going to be undisturbed and you have the responsibilities. But I think you know I, I don't think that the LSD experience is ever going to you know have as big an appeal as like marijuana, right? 
It's, mm-hmm. it's always been that's always been a minority case. But I think people, more people, would be willing to have an LSD experience would be more would be attracted to it if it's something that could be done within a half hour or an hour, right? Mm-hmm. So DMT is supposed. I've actually never tried DMT, but I'm told that it's it's sort of like that. It's short acting. Um, but if you can hone that and get more sort of the effects, the fun effects that people are interested in, um, with uh, minimize any physical side effects and make make the time commitment um, uh, smaller, I think you know that that would appeal to more people. Um, and you know there, there, there's room for for improved stimulants, I think. Although a lot of the ones that are out there are pretty damn good. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, so, so you know, the drugs we use now, uh, a lot of them have drawbacks that, 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 that they can work on minimizing um, if there were a financial incentive to do so, right? Mm-hmm. Now, LSD is an interesting one, and I still want to try that. I was going to try that a couple times uh, when I was like 20, and, and we couldn't find any in Eau Claire, Wisconsin at the time, so I never got a chance to try it out. But my the people I know that tried it, they, like, did it – a couple times, and they said that was enough. It was really good. It changed yeah. their brain, and they're they're done with it. Right. Well, that's fine. You know, and people uh, will, will say the same thing about uh, psilocybin mushrooms. Some people, um, you know, there these studies. Um, you know, there, there was the Good Friday experiment uh, years ago, and there was a sort of uh, updating of that where they followed up on these people who were involved in this experiment, um, where they uh, they. Uh, took psilocybin and they went to this uh, religious service, and 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 overwhelmingly described this as a life-changing experience that put them more in touch with God and all these wonderful things. Um, and uh, more recently, and they did a follow-up more recently of all those people, and they still continue to say many years later that this was a great experience. But like, no, it's not something they're going to do every day or every week or every month. <laughs> it's you know they do it maybe a few times and, and that's they're good. Um, and uh, there was more, more recent research uh, uh, in a similar vein where they uh, actually did sessions for people with uh, psilocybin and, again, found that a lot of them had quite profound um, experiences. Um, so, you know, not something they were taking casually or lightly, um, not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm going to hasten to add. <laughs> you know, I don't think we, we should all have to have, Every time we use a, a psychoactive substance, that it should have to have some deep, heavy, you know, meaning to it. But it certainly has that potential, and you know, and so I don't poo-poo that at all. I think that is very legitimate. I mean, we've all had, you know, these sort of profound experiences that altered our lives in, in various different kinds of ways, not necessarily involving drugs, but some of those experiences do involve drugs, and there's no denying that. Um, so it would be nice to have LSD. More readily available, um, more reliable in terms of knowing exactly what you're getting. Um, even if it's only, even if its primary use was once, you know, <laughs> or, or a few times. Uh, I mean, there aren't that many heavy LSD users anyway. But but um, we don't know what kind of benefits there would be from that, right? The people who are being deterred by prohibition from trying that. Um, and, th- and this is always my approach: is like people say, oh. Man, if you make drugs legal, more people might try them, and that would be awful. And I'm like, no, that would be good. <laughs> that would be good. These people, the reason, primarily the reason people reason, uh, the reason people use drugs is because they enjoy them in one way or another, and enjoyment is good. And um, especially if, if people can have these very meaningful experiences, um, who knows how many meaningful experiences have been, you know, blocked by prohibition, um, and or what they might have amounted to. Um, 
So that, that's the kind of thing I think about is, is uh, the upside of more drug use uh, as opposed to the downside. Obviously, there could be downsides too, but we can't, even if we're just evaluating this in a kind of cost-benefit utilitarian way, it's totally intellectually dishonest to pretend like there are only costs involved to drug use. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because to say that is to say that people are just totally irrational, don't know what they're doing, they don't can't control their lives, they can't make their own decisions ever, really, because they can't be dependent on. Because humans throughout history have sought out, sought out psychoactive substances. Um, they they claim to enjoy them. They seem to think it improves their lives. So unless we're ready to dismiss all of that testimony as totally unreliable, they don't know what they're talking about because the drug is taking control of them <laughs> and giving <laughs> giving them like a false consciousness. We have to give it credence. We have to, uh, you know, when somebody says that drugs have improved their lives, we should give that a lot of weight. Now, it may turn out that they're fooling themselves. You know, that's been known to happen, right? Mm-hmm. But that shouldn't be, the, the presumption should not be, oh, if it's a drug, you must be lying or you must be mistaken um, because they, you know, it could be perfectly true that that, that drug has improved their lives. Uh, and we really have to take that into account, even even if you're not interested in the philosophical principle, which which, you know, is the most important thing to me, even if you're just approaching this as a utilitarian, you really have to look at the benefits of drug use. Well, I think ultimately people should be well informed about drugs and realize that not all drugs are equal. Some are more problematic. I think one of the most problematic drugs out there is cigarettes, which once you get a habit, it's very hard to quit. They uh, have a lot of damage to your body. Nobody's denying that these days. Um, but, the main, but the main problem with that, I would say, is it's not, uh, you know, it's not the nicotine. It's the uh, it's the cigarettes. It's, right. the ci- it's the cigarettes. It's the cigarettes. Right. As I was gonna, I was gonna actually continue. Yeah, since I, I'm an ex-cigarette addict, I was very heavily addicted to cigarettes. Now I enjoy a cigar on occasion. Actually, I've only had one this year so far in 2013 because I've been too damn busy. I, I like to have one a week, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy. But I don't need to inhale my cigar to get the nicotine effect. Um, and smoking them infrequently like that uh, – the studies found that there was no increase in, you know, cancer or any other health problems from occasional cigar smoking if you don't inhale. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, um, I mean, the typical pattern of cigar use in America is um, it's not heavy, and it's and people typically don't inhale. So for sure, if you suck if you suck down you know several cigars a day and you inhale it, you would get similar effects to a pack a day, you know, being a pack a day habit. But people typically don't do that. So mm-hmm. if you look overall at cigar smokers, you will see um, hardly any elevation in risk from the smoking-related illnesses, um, you know, compared to non-smokers. Um, pipe smokers actually have somewhat uh, better health outcomes than non-smokers, but it might not be due to the pipe smoking per se. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that might be other thing, other factors that work there. Yeah. So quite clearly, and th- and this is uh, in my first book was actually about the anti-smoking movement, and one of the things that bothers me about the anti-smoking movement is that they refuse to make distinctions and. You know, tobacco is all evil, um, and it's all equally bad. And that's a really, it's a stupid message to send people, first of all, <laughs> because you're telling them that they can't, they, they're not interested in harm reduction, right? Mm-hmm. They don't want, mm-hmm, don't mm-hmm. want people to just not consume the plant at all <laughs> in any form. And if they say, I've cut back from a pack a day to half a pack, it's still terrible, even though that's really much better. And if they switch from, you know, cigarettes to say smokeless tobacco, that's way better, 
you know, they have virtually no risk compared to the risk from smoking. It's much, 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 much smaller. Um, so, but but the anti-smoking movement, weirdly, the anti-smoking movement is against smokeless tobacco, um, even though it has the potential uh, to drastically, dramatically reduce uh, smokers' risks. Um, E-cigarettes is another example, even a more insane example, because then it's not even tobacco. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? It looks like a cigarette. I'll grant you that. Right? And so it's a purely symbolic revulsion <laughs> at this thing that resembles cigarettes that has virtually no health risks. I mean, they obviously haven't done, you know, long-term epidemiological research on the effects of e-cigarettes, but there's no smoke. <laughs> so, I mean, the smoke is the main problem. Um, uh, the main source of the, the toxins and carcinogens. Uh, it's got nicotine. It's got, uh, you know, the, the um, carrying agent. It's got some flavorings in it. Maybe that's going to have some kind of risk associated with it over the long term, but it's not going to be anything like the risk from cigarette smoking. So if you if people can, and they do, switch from a pack-a-day cigarette ha- habit to regular e-cigarette use, that's a huge improvement for them, mm-hmm. a huge reduction mm-hmm. in risk. And and any rational person would have to say that's a good for you. <laughs> that was a good thing you did, and you you know uh, that's quite an accomplishment. But for most, now not all, but most anti-smoking activists are going to say no. It's all horrible. That looks too much. It reminds me too much of cigarette smoking. It looks too much like it, and it all should be banned. Um, and, yeah. and so that's kind of kind of insane. And you know it's reminiscent, of course, of of not drawing distinctions among the illegal drugs or among different uh, – or between use and abuse of, you know, illegal drugs. Uh, if you smoke pot occasionally, you might as well be, you know, a heroin addict. Um, and, you know, so the same kind of mentality you see among prohibitionists you see uh, within the anti-smoking movement, too. Yeah, I'm a big fan of electronic cigarettes myself. Our website has some tobacco harm reduction articles on it. I know a lot of people that got off regular cigarettes by switching to e-cigarettes, and of course their lungs cleared up and all that good stuff. In my case, you know, I didn't do the e-cigarettes, but I quit the cigarettes completely. But I, my 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 reward for quitting cigarettes was to be allowed to have an occasional cigar. So. Uh-huh. So that's that was my approach, which that's pretty harmless to have an occasional cigar, you know. Some yeah, my, form. I have a colleague who uh, he was a really heavy smoker. I think he was a two pack a day smoker, um, and he has an occasional cigar now. And I've had occasional cigars with him, um, and there's not, you know, the conventional wisdom is, oh, you should never do that because you're gonna. It's, as soon as you do that, you're gonna become re-addicted. You're gonna be before you know it, you'll be smoking tobacco cigarettes again, you know, a day again, and it's just not true. You know, totally, people, totally not true. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, people, you know, with, with all drugs, people uh, move in and out of heavy use, move in and out of addiction, um, use drugs for different reasons in different periods of their lives. Um, sometimes can use a drug in a way that improves their lives. Sometimes use in a way that 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 uh, that hurts them or the people around them. Um, and it can be highly variable within, you know, the same person, let alone from person to person. So, I mean, we really have to be willing to make uh, these distinctions um, and, and not have this all-or-nothing attitude. Mm-hmm. Now, for myself personally, I don't plan to use opiates until I'm 90. Hopefully they'll be legal by then, but I have too many things to do, and I feel that they might be too tempting for me. I had morphine once in the hospital. It was pretty good. Um, you like this? I liked it, but it's like, you know, this could be too distracting. I just don't want to get involved with it. 
Uh, well, you know, that, obviously that's your choice. Um, I, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, to the extent that I've had, um, you know, legal narcotics uh, that are, you know, opioids that are supposed to resemble the opiates, um, I sort of sort of get it, like why people like it, but it's not overwhelmingly appealing to me. I mean, I think on balance, I could I could uh, see uh, at least regularly using, if not being addicted to uh, stimulants more than anything else, just because. And this is an interesting sort of point uh, that I'm making. You know, I'm not such an interesting person. No, <laughs> it's an interesting, interesting point that other people have made as well. Not just I didn't come up with it, but but the fact that stimulants can be integrated into your life more readily and you can still accomplish not only can you accomplish everything you need to accomplish but you can do it better <laughs> and more readily right that in a sense makes them more addictive yeah people are more likely to use a drug all the time if they can get away with doing it and it doesn't ruin their lives so uh, so a drug that is less disruptive is is more addictive right? i mean caffeine's like that right it's true. There's a, but, you know, there's a drug people can use all the time, like at least throughout their waking hours, every day. And they may be addicted in the sense that they would have some trouble giving it up. It's not doing much in the way of physical damage to them. And it's certainly not impairing their ability, you know, to meet their responsibilities. If anything, it's helping them. Um, so there's a, an example of a drug that a lot of people are hooked on in some sense, but it's not a big deal. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, the fact that it's a stimulant that's compatible with with work and with, you know, taking care of their families and whatever, um, you know, explains why um, it's relatively appealing in terms of regular use. Mm -hmm. To me personally, stimulants just aren't appealing. Um, I did have cocaine one time, so I did have one additional drug once in my life, but they just don't have an appeal. I don't want to be more uh, up than I am all the time. I'm already, you know, enough that way. It just doesn't. I think that's the way a lot of people are with drugs. You know, if you make them legal, and a lot of people are going to say, I don't want to do that drug. I have no interest in it. Well, I think, you know, I mean, stimulants are useful for particular purposes, for sure. I mean, look, people use them all the time, oftentimes in an officially approved way, for particular purposes. Uh, I mean, they give them to pilots, right? <laughs> why do they give, you know, why do they give amphetamines to pilots? It's like sometimes you don't have much sleep, but you need to be able to focus and concentrate. It's good for that. <laughs> now, the government totally admits that it's good for that in certain contexts. You know, and the prescriptions for you know, ADHD, obviously, it acknowledges that here's a, a drug, you know, they give them phenomenes for that, uh, that can improve your life by helping you focus and, and uh, you know, do better at school or at work. Um, so clearly they have uses. And, you know, that's a very functional thing. And that's a use where it ought to be possible even Puritans to accept that because it's helping you work. You know, it's not, it's not fun, really. I mean, once you go to a party and you do it, then it's problematic. But if you're, if it's what it's doing, it's helping you perform better, right? That ought to be acceptable. Um, and you know, it is in certain in certain contexts. It just it just depends. Um, but I think I, once people are, are like partying on it or having sex after day, you know, that, that's bad, obviously. But but as long as you're going to work, <laughs> it should be it should be okay. Well, methamphetamine is still very popular in Japan, although it is illegal now. Uh, during World War II, of course, they filled the Japanese soldiers up with it, and the German soldiers. The American soldiers got it too sometimes. Um, after World War II, they filled the Japanese workers up on it all the time. Um, then they finally made it illegal, but now it's still very popular, and it's 
I mean, if you have marijuana in Japan, you go to prison for years. Methamphetamine is more of a slap on the wrist. Well, it used to be that way in the U.S. I mean, these uh, the, the amphetamines were over the counter for, for quite a while. You didn't even need a prescription. Then even after you needed a prescription, it was quite easy to get one. It was, you know, I'm tired and out of sorts, I need to lose weight, whatever. Your GP would, would write you a prescription. Um, and so huge amounts were consumed you know, up until uh, the 60s where they really started making it harder to get a prescription. Um, and, you know, the country didn't go to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> it was pretty productive during that period of time when everybody was <laughs> taking speed uh, routinely. Um, and, you know, so you kind of have to, have to wonder uh, what is the fear right i mean it's these um especially with these drugs that were legal and and widely consumed by middle class white people you know <laughs> right <laughs> so it wasn't even oh is those foreigners or those minorities are using it um it's like how does that drug um become evil somehow and not even evil but it's again we're, we're still using these drugs as medicines in some contexts that you know that are very similar to the to the illegal use of them so it's a very kind of schizophrenic attitude where the same drug can be good or evil and not depending upon um, whether it's actually useful or helpful, but depending upon whether it's blessed by some, you know, state-appointed uh, gatekeeper, um, which may, may, may have something to do with it being useful, but may have nothing to do with that. You know, a doctor can prescribe, a, a, a mistakenly prescribe a drug that's actually bad for somebody, and somebody could independently take a drug and have it be good for them. <laughs> Those things are certainly logically possible, right? But we act as if, um, you know, if you have a little magical piece of paper, the drug that would otherwise be evil uh, suddenly becomes good. That is absolutely true. And I think we've been talking a long time. I think maybe that's a good uh, note to close on that magic piece of paper that called a prescription all of a sudden makes this evil drug into the good drug. Methamphetamine is legal by prescription. It's legal to prescribe to six-year-olds. You know, uh, was... Yes, they, well, they, they use, um, use it for narcolepsy. Um, they used to use it as a diet aid. I'm not sure if they use it for that anymore, but they certainly use other amphetamines um, to treat ADHD. It is approved for ADHD in six-year-olds. Oh, it is. Okay. Meth yes. Methamphetamine in particular. Because, I mean, dextroamphetamine, I know, um, is in uh, Adderall. Yeah, that's much more commonly prescribed, um, yeah. but uh, methamphetamine is prescribed under the brand name of desoxin. I encountered it when I was doing some research on drug interactions with alcohol, and all of a sudden, uh, methamphetamine available for prescription for ADHD to six years six years of age and up, and it's like, what? This is the one that they tell me is the evil and makes you kill everybody on TV, and it's about the, the whole Breaking Bad and all this crap. It's, right. How can you be prescribing that to six-year-olds? Well, but God help you if you're a sleepy truck driver and you don't have a prescription <laughs> and you and you take one of them. Um, you know, I, whenever they talk about, oh, my God, there are people out of the road and the influence of you know, methamphetamine, it's like, well, probably better under the influence than not. <laughs> you know? I mean, if you've got a sleepy uh, uh, truck driver, I'd rather, and, and the choice is either you can be sleepy <laughs> and no amphetamine or or not so sleepy with the amphetamine, I wanted to take the amphetamine. You know, obviously, it would be better if everyone always got enough sleep. <laughs> no one was ever, you know, driving when they were dangerously tired. Um, but, but, you know, that doesn't, in the real world, people sometimes get in those situations. 
Um, and that's a safety improvement if he's taking something that makes him more alert and less likely to doze off at the wheel. Well, I think we're going to bring the show to a close, so I want to thank you for being our guest this evening, Jacob Sullum. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, and good night. We will see you next week when we do another show.